0: there. How are you? It's so, so good to be here. My name's Gareth. I'm here with my beautiful wife, Charlotte, and we're so excited to be sharing this morning. But before you, I wanted to share a wee bit about me. Um, I am a stereotypical Irish man in many regards. I love potatoes, I love Guinness, and I play the bagpipes. But there's one stereotype I don't think that I, I feel that well, and it's one that Irish people aren't the brightest. I don't know if you've heard that stereotype before, but they're not the brightest. They're not the smartest. And this was drilled into me from a young age because I wasn't the brightest kid. Uh, My mum brought me to the library at one stage to try and get me to learn to read. I was a very lazy reader. I I liked people reading stories to me. I didn't like reading them myself. I was one of them guys who struggled in school, struggled to pay attention, struggled to pay attention in church as well, not just in school, but in church. And it, it actually reminded me as my mum brought me to the library of a, a, a joke I suppose I heard one time about an Irish man who went to a library. And he went up to the librarian and he said, I'll have a fish and chip, please. The librarian looks at him, goes, sir, this is a library. Like, oh, sorry, can I have a fish and chip, please? <laughs> but when I went to the library that time, it wasn't for a fish and chip, it was for a lesson. And the lesson I learned was this one here. You should never judge a book by its cover, because I went and my mum was trying to get me to read and she said just go find any book, any book at all and I went of course and I was flicking through them and I just wanted to get out of there and I picked up a book, I looked at the cover, I flicked through it, that looked okay, brought it to my mum and she goes are you sure you want this book? I said yeah I want that book and you know how we children are they can be very persistent and they can insist on things in a public place where you just want, you want things to just get out of there Don't make a mess, make a hassle. So she just scans the book through and I went home only to find out the book was in Spanish. (laughs) You should never judge a book by its cover. Turn to your neighbor and in your best Irish accent say you should never judge a book by its cover. I think there's going to be a bit of practice needed after this. A lot of you guys need a lot of practice on your Irish accent. But you should never judge a book by its cover. You know, growing up, I did this a lot with the Bible. I judged it by its cover. I I went to church every week. I was in quite a religious home. And we went and, and I would hear the stories from the Bible. And I would think, that's a lovely story. There's a lovely principle, lovely message in there. But it was irrelevant in my life. I didn't think it had any value. I didn't think the Word of God still was speaking and active today. I just thought it was one of them historical books. I judged it by its cover. And many people, maybe some even in this room, do that very thing still today. They, they judge the Bible for what it is. In fact, if you open up the Bible, you'll, you'll find a book called Judges, which is ironic. You know, you are oh, typical Christianity. I heard someone once say, all about judging people. All about looking at the outside of people, judging them with their, with their big Bibles and their suits, and they're looking down on any, everyone else. But the reality is, it's kind of ironic, that the book of Judges doesn't sum up Christianity, but humanity right. It's a book about the sinful state of you and me, and the people of Israel throughout the ages, and how they struggled with it. And it's, I suppose we have a negative connotation when we think of the word judges. We live in a society where everyone's like, don't judge me. Yeah. You know, only God can judge, don't judge me. But in the book of Judges in the Bible, it's kind of funny because they're actually wanting God to bring judgment. They want a judge. Not a judge as you and I know it. When we think of a judge, we think of someone sitting in a courtroom, sentencing people, convicting people for their crimes. But in the Bible, we see a judge isn't that type of person. It's more of a political slash warrior leader, a bit like a, a, a tribal chieftain. Someone who doesn't sentence people but sets them free. And in the Bible, we see the the story of Israel. Many of you in this room will know it, where they were in slavery in Egypt for hundreds of years. God raised up a deliverer, Moses, who who brought the people out and they wandered in the wilderness for many years before Joshua, his assistant, stepped up and he steered the people into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where they're able to settle after many successful battles against the surrounding nations around them. But the book of Judges opens up with the story of how Joshua died at the right old age of 110. But when he died, so did the principles and the, the pursuit of God in that nation. And we see that today oftentimes where there's that, that generation who are committed to the gospel, it makes way to another generation coming behind it who are complacent with the gospel. And then the generation after that compromised the gospel. And we see what happens in the book of Judges. There is a a generation that is raised up that knew not God and did evil in his eyes. They didn't know the word of God. They didn't know the will of God. They didn't know the ways of God. And God takes a step back. God never forces himself on anyone. He takes a step back. They choose to go their own sinful ways. And as God steps back, the nations around step in and step all over the people of Israel and start to oppress them and start to enslave them once again. And they're in a moment where they're like, we need a judge. Not someone who's going to damn us, but someone who will deliver us. We need a judge. We need judgment. We need God to send someone. And that's where we pick up our story this morning. In the book of Judges, if you have a Bible, will you turn with me? Judges chapter three. We're going to read verses 12 to 30. Verse 12 starts to sum up What has happened? Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. And because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel, getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him. Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer. Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjaminite. The Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, the king of Moab. Now Ehud had made a double-edged sword, about a cubit long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. Everyone say, very fat man. He was a very fat man. After Ehud had presented the tribute, he sent on their way those who had carried it. But on reaching the stone images near Gilgal, he himself went back to Eglon and said your majesty i have a secret message for you the king said to his attendants leave us and they all left him ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of the palace and said i have a message from god for you as the king rose from his seat ehud reached with his left hand drew the sword from his right thigh and plunged it into the king's belly even the handle sank in after the bleed and his bowels discharged Ehud did not pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch. He shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. After he had gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the palace. They waited till the point of embarrassment. But when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked them. There they saw their Lord fallen to the floor, dead." While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the stone images and escaped to Sarai. Where he arrived there, he blew a a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites came down, went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down and took possession of the fords of Jordan that led to Moab. They allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong, not one escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. Let's pray just for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is alive and active, that it's not irrelevant, but it is speaking to each and every one of us today. We pray, would you give us open hearts, open eyes, open ears to, to feel, to hear. To see what it is you're speaking to us today. By the power of your Holy Spirit. For the glory and the honor of the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. What a story. What a story. Can you imagine the situation. Where the Israelites are there. And they're crying out. We need deliverance. They've been captive and slaves for 18 years. 18 years. They cry out to God. We need a judge. We need someone to deliver us. And in steps Ehud. I'm sure the people are going, ah. anyone but Ehud. (laughs) But you should not judge a book by its cover. Because Ehud was God's man for the job. Why would you say, oh, Ehud? Well, the Bible gives us a small description that has a big implication on the task at hand. He was left-handed. Now, anyone who's left-handed in the room, would you raise your left hand? No judgment on you guys, Okay. (laughs) no judgment whatsoever. We love you. We appreciate you. This is not a slight dig at you. We're not praying for you to become right-handed. But in that situation and in that time and context of history, to be left-handed wasn't a good thing. Because when we look at not only the scriptures, but society at the time, the right hand was a symbol of strength and of ability. No one was left-handed by choice. Left-handed people were seen as weak. And even worse than this, look at his name. He's Ehud, the son of Gera, who is from the tribe of Benjamin. The name Benjamin means son of the right hand. (laughs) So here he is, not only in society he seems weak, but even in his own family, not only from outsiders looking at him thinking, he's weak, he's left-handed. Even the inner close circle of friends and family know him that he's walking outside his identity, identity and his inheritance. He's the son of a right-handed man, but he himself is left-handed. And in that stage and place and space of history, to be left-handed would have brought you difficulty, so we know it wasn't by choice. Scholars seem to suggest that he would have been left-handed because of a disability or deformity at birth or throughout his life, something happened, and it would have put him at a disadvantage in his life. But I want you to remember, That Ehud is like you and me. We're all born left-handed one way or another. We're born with weaknesses. Some people are born into that situation, whether it's their family situation or born in it with it. uh, An inclination in your heart and your soul. Maybe even in this room, there's weaknesses all around. And although it's not written on your forehead, you might be struggling with anxiety, depression, suicidal thoughts. You might have a terrible body image of yourself. You might also be in financial situation under stress. You might be struggling with addiction, with illness, with sin, even being Irish. You know what? A, like, we all have weaknesses. We all have weaknesses. But even if Ehud wasn't man's choice, he was God's choice. And God loves to work in your weaknesses. In fact. Other people will look at you and they'll see your weaknesses. Your work colleagues, your friends, maybe even your family, people who don't really know you perhaps, will look at your life, see your weaknesses, and write the headlines. But God doesn't look at the headlines. He looks at your hearts. They'll write the cover of your life. They'll say, oh, him, such and such are herd. This is what they do, this is what they're like, this is who they are. They will write it, but God doesn't do that. He knows your story. He's been there from day one, page one. He doesn't only know your story, he wants to rewrite your story. He wants to work in your weaknesses. In fact, there's an amazing man of God in the Bible, many of you will have heard of him, the Apostle Paul, who was formerly Saul. And he did many amazing things for God. He's seen so many people come to faith, but not only making decisions for Jesus, but as disciples, He, he pastored so many churches. But he himself, although he was a great man of God, he struggled with weakness. And he prayed to God, he said, God, would you take this weakness away? And the Bible doesn't tell us exactly what it was, but he tells us how God responds. And we read it in in 2 Corinthians 12, verses nine to 11. This is how God responds. He says, each time God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I am glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. That's why I take pleasure in my weakness and its insults, hardships, persecutions, and troubles that I suffer for Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. God wants to work in your weakness. And as we look at this passage today, I believe there's three principles that we can take away. How God wants to change the narrative of our lives. Not of being a victim of weakness, but being a victor in our weakness. So that God is glorified in our lives. And the first thing we'll see in the person of Ehud and in this passage, that God wants to turn your weakness into worship. We looked at how Ehud's name you know, his, his tribe, that the son of Benjamin, means the son of the right hand. But Ehud's name in the Hebrew has a beautiful meaning. It means, I shall praise. And there's a tension there, isn't there? Like he's born into this family tribe. The son of the right hand is a left-handed, ha- or left-handed man. And he's saying, despite all of that, I shall praise. He has a choice to make because it's at your weakest point you can give God the highest praise. We see it throughout the scriptures. We, we mentioned Paul a second ago when he was in prison with, with Silas in Acts chapter 16 at his lowest point. This is before Rome is ahead of him and he knows what's coming. He's sitting there and yet he sings praise. Think of Jesus in the garden. Do you not remember before he went and was crucified and tried before the people? He had the last supper with his disciples and it says before he got up and went, they stood up and sung a hymn. In their weakest moments, you can give God the highest praise. And Ehud chooses that because he has a choice just like you and me this morning. You can choose to focus on what you've got or what you're not. You can focus on what God has given you and placed you in your life. Or you can focus on what you're not. That you're not right-handed, that you're not this, you're not that, you're so far off it. Ehud chooses to worship God, not just with his lips, but with his life. Because he gets up and he starts to put a plan together of how he can see God exalted in the land again. How he can see people set free in the name of God. He starts to worship God. He embraces his weakness so that God will be exalted, not just merely with songs from his lips, but the life that he lives. You can choose today, this morning, to allow God to rewrite your story and turn your weakness into worship. The second thing we see, is that God wants to turn your weakness into a weapon. Or, in Ehud's situation, a secret weapon, right? We've read in the story already what happened. Ehud decides, okay, I want to worship God in my weakness. And he starts to put a plan together. And God starts, when people are in a place where they want to see God bring worship from their lives, he'll use it as a weapon against the enemy, right? And what he does here is very, very genius. Like, he embraces his weakness And he gets and makes this sword and straps it to his right leg. Tap your right leg and say right leg. Right leg. Right leg, right? right? Not left leg, right leg. That's important. Why? Because in that culture at the time, if you were right-handed and you had a sword and you wanted to hide it, you'd strap it to your left leg. Touch your left leg and say left leg. Left leg, leg, okay? It's just easier. If you're in a a battle situation, you, you pull it from your left leg. But Ehud was pulling it from his right leg. In fact... It reminds me at the time, me and Charlotte were from a lovely town back home in Northern Ireland called Enniskillen. And it has a castle, a beautiful castle on the water. And this castle was built in 1428, believe it or not. A lot of buildings in Ireland, a lot of historic buildings, a lot of churches, a lot of castles. But one thing you'll notice, if you're into your history movies or if, if you're into any shows with castles and attacks... One thing about the Enniskillen castle is, if you go up the stairs, you know the windy stone staircases, you have that image in your mind? You're always running clockwise if you go up. And you're always running anti-clockwise as you go down. The reason for that is strategic. So if people are trying to force their way into the castle and to kill you, they will have to keep running with their right arm up against the wall. And it means that they can't can't attack. Nearly the the wall becomes a shield for those coming down, because they can hide behind it, but they're attacking with their right arm. This looks like a really Irish dance, nearly, you know. <laughs> That's where it came from. It was all them stairs. That's how they learned it. But if you're trying to attack, you know, it, it, you can't, the wall's blocking, but if you are defending, you can stab it. That's my best stab there, you know. And it's the same strategically. As he walked in, what they would have done, they would have patted everyone down on the left leg because everyone was right-handed at that stage. And if he, Especially if he had a deformed right hand, they might even have patted him down they definitely wouldn't have looked at his right leg. See, his weakness becomes a weapon because he comes back to the king and says, I have a secret message for you from God. Just a wee side point. If anyone ever comes to you and says, I have a secret message for you from God, just run, right? They want to kill you, okay? Of course, we're a church. We believe in God speaking through people, but any, let me clarify this. Any word from God will never contradict the word of God, okay? Right? So he says, I've got a word for you. And the king goes, okay, there's a guy with a deformed hand or arm, and he's left-handed, so he can't be any threat to me. And the moment he goes, yeah, everyone leave us, all the servants go, and he brings him up to the upper chamber, which seems to be a place where the king would have used a bathroom at some stage. And then he locks, like he's there, and he's having a word. Again, another side point, never lock yourself in a bathroom with an assassin, okay? That's just... <laughs> Let's just get that out of the way. Don't do that. That's not a good idea. It only ends badly for you. So he's in this room with Ehud, he thinks he's no threat. He thinks he's no danger. And just when he says, I have a message for you, the king stands up and he stabs him with his sword. Uh, And it's very quite graphic what happens next because his barrels discharge and the sword, the man is so fat, it goes the blade goes in and doesn't come back out. In fact, it's really interesting, the use of words here. We, we said, very fat man. You know how the Bible describes him in Hebrew? Meaty, Meet. That meaty. Okay, third side point, never call anyone meaty, right? <laughs> if your wife comes in with a new dress on, and says, how am I looking, honey? You go, meaty. <laughs> that's not gonna end well for you either, okay? It says meaty, and it's funny in the Hebrew, why? Because that's never really referred to kings. Definitely not people. The only time you see that Hebrew word of miti refers to an animal that's just about to be sacrificed. What's even more interesting is Eglon. If you look at the meaning of his name, it means calf. So so here we have this image of Ehud, the left-handed man bringing a sacrifice, bringing a tribute to King Eglon. But really what's happening is he's about to bring King Eglon as a sacrifice. God works in his weakness and uses his weakness as a weapon. Whatever you're struggling with this morning, whatever you're going through, God wants to use it to defeat the enemy. Don't get me wrong. I'm a farmer. A fattened calf, a bull that's ready for the slaughter is dangerous. But it's not when it's dead. When it's defeated and it's lying on the ground, it can do nothing to you. So whatever the devil is trying to use as a weapon against you, God wants to to flip the script and use it as a a weapon against the enemy. Whatever you're going through. But I want to be really clear as well is that God just doesn't want to use a weapon use weakness as a weapon in your life but in the lives of others and that brings us to our third and final principle is that God wants to turn your weakness into a way out for others when ehud slays the king you don't see him run into the hills going it's all about me his voice starts to change and say here we're going to set you free right it's not about me. He doesn't point to himself. There's a moment we see in the scripture where he kills the king, locks the doors, runs out, and there's an awkward moment where the servants smell something. They're giving each other that look going, oh, he's, he's had a big dinner again. Not realizing that he's dead. And time passes by. It's embarrassing. They get a key and they find that the king is dead. But by that stage, Ehud has escaped. He's ran to the hills and he blows a, a, a trumpet, calls all the Israelites out and he says, look, God has given the Moabites into your hands. He didn't do it for him. Just He didn't just allow God to use his weakness as as worship and a weapon, but as a way out for others. It was through his example that others were able to experience freedom. And this morning, whatever you're going through, if it is anxiety, depression, God wants to use that in your life, not just to bring freedom to you, but to others. Because there's many people in this room, you've overcome addiction. You've overcome different sins in your life. You've overcome traumatic situations. God doesn't just want to set you free. He wants to set others free through you. And we know that his example is an encouragement, not just to fight, because you don't fight alone in this, but it, it is a fight. Like, it's, it's, not, it's not easy in this. We're not blowing a horn, you know, and, and that's us. For, it's a fight. He calls the Israelites to fight, and he's going to fight alongside them. You know, when people in your life are struggling with them, things, we just don't step back and say, okay, you do it yourself. We fight with them. But God fights for us. Verse 28, so, so good. He says, follow me, follow my example. He ordered them, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. It's the Lord fighting for us. And I suppose it's at this point, I want to be really, really careful. Even to go back to the sermon title for this morning, you should never judge a book by its cover. Right, We see that in the person of Ehud, we see that in this passage. God wants to to work and move in your weakness. We've looked at three really helpful principles, but let me just be really clear. This passage isn't about principles. It's about a person. It's the person of Jesus. Why do you say that, Gareth? Well, you should never judge a book by its cover. If we were just to read the story in the literal sense, out of context of the whole of the Scriptures, your eyes would be fixed on Ehud. Your eyes will be fixed on what maybe you could learn about that. We're really good at that, aren't we, as Christians? Where we go, okay, where am I in the Bible today? Here, that must be me. But if we're being honest, if we're, we find ourselves in the scriptures here, it's actually not as Ehud, the hero, but as the people that are being set free. And it's not just by Ehud, it's by the picture that Ehud portrays, and that's the person of Jesus. I wish I could say this book was all about Ehud, and this is how you live this out in your lives. But the truth is, Ehud wasn't a perfect judge. He had weaknesses, and if truth be told, there isn't actually really a happy ending to this book. Yes, there was amazing peace and breakthrough and prosperity for 80 years in the land. It was fantastic. But the story starts to spiral down again. The people of Israel fall back into bondage and slavery, and if you read through the whole book of Judges, you'll see time and time again that actually Ehud was a good deliverer for their day, but they needed an ultimate deliverer. Someone who would free them completely. Ehud was able to free them in their lives on earth, so to speak, those 80 years, but Jesus comes to free us for eternity. He is the ultimate judge. He is the Ehud. What does the Bible say? And We read in Isaiah 53, verse 2. It says that Jesus was quite like Ehud. He was quite unlikely. People didn't see him as what he should have been. It says he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was, so to speak, the left-handed man of his generation. The people around him, even his own family at the start, didn't recognize him for who he was. The religious leaders, the the church, so to speak, of the day were, were going hard against him, saying he wasn't the Messiah. He was the unlikely hero, but it was through his weakness that he was able to offer up the ultimate expression of worship to the Father. It was in his weakness on the cross That living sacrifice the Bible talks about. Not just through his lips, not just saying, Praise the Father. And, you know, he didn't just speak it, he lived it out. He didn't worship God just with his lips and the words he said, but the life that he gave on the cross. And it was through that worship that God was able to use his weakness as a weapon against the devil, against Satan. It was on the cross, and his weakest moment, Jesus brought the highest praise to the Father. And it was a weapon against the enemy against Satan. It defeated him because Jesus was on the cross for your sin and for mine. He took the wrath of God. He took it all and he set us free from the curse and the consequences of sin. The curse that holds us bondage in this life and the consequences that holds us bondage for all eternity. Separated from God the Father. Jesus defeated it. His weakness came and was used as a weapon but as a weapon not just for him to die and to be raised again from the dead, but as a way out for others. It's through his sacrifice that we know salvation, that we know forgiveness from God, we know freedom from our sin, and we know friendship with the one true God. This whole passage in the person of Ehud points to the person of Jesus Christ. You should not judge a book by its cover. It's not all what it seems to be here. It is the picture of the person of Jesus the ultimate deliverer that you and I need. Maybe you're in here this morning and you don't know him as your Savior. You don't know him as judge, so to speak, that one who isn't here to sentence you in this life but to set you free. You know, Jesus said, I didn't come in to condemn the world, but through me the world would be set free. And it reminds me of another man in the Scriptures, in the New Testament, Mark chapter 3. It tells the story of a man with a shriveled hand. A bit like... Or Ehud, the left-handed man. And we pick up the, the story in Mark 3, verses 1 to 6. It says, Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is it lawful on the Sabbath to do? To do evil or to save a life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts said to the man stretch out your hand he stretched it out and his hand was completely restored then the pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus what blows me away about this passage and this part of scripture is that this man with the shriveled hand was at a place of worship he was in the temple and we can sort of guess this wasn't his first time he had been there for time Sunday after Sunday or Sabbath after Sabbath I should say and he never received healing and wholeness until the day Jesus turned up. We sang the song at the beginning, you know, I believe there's another miracle in the room. And this morning, I don't know if this is your first time here at a church or the hundredth time, but you've walked into this room with that weakness, with that shrivel hand. The greatest weakness the Bible says we all have is the weakness of sin that separates us from God. The devil uses to kill, steal and destroy, not just in this life, but in the next. And maybe you've walked into this room, and on the surface, all the religious people can look upon you and think you have it all together. You can hide the hand. You can hide the weakness. But Jesus sees it. Jesus knows your story inside out. He doesn't judge a book by its cover. He knows you. And this morning, he wants to bring healing and wholeness that's only found in him. In a moment, I want to give an opportunity for anyone in this room who needs and wants to accept Jesus as Savior. I'm going to ask you that you would take a step just like this man where Jesus said, would you stretch out your hand and say, Jesus, I need you, I want you.